Hey, um, I was just calling to leave a message about maybe some stuff that you guys could talk about, just because it is Texas and there's a large Hispanic population. I know I grew up hearing all kinds of cool stories about, I guess, something called La Llorona. It's like this crying woman that you see by water, by the river, who apparently drowns her kid. Something about like having an affair, maybe having a kid that she wasn't married or with a married man, or something like that. And she was real upset with the father of the children, you know, not leaving his, his wife to be with her, help take care of the kids or something. And so in like anger, desperation, she drowned her two kids herself. And then she was punished by God. She was forced to, to walk the earth, always like searching for her children. And so that's where people see her ghost or whatever in five bodies of water and she's crying. The story's always like somebody's walking home late at night party or something like that and they see a, a woman crying out of her they're going to help her and she turns around and she like screams and she's crying. It's usually like a skull face or something weird and scary. Have you heard the story of and written on the wall? And everyone and has the different stories of, oh, this happened to my brother. This is telling brother. you stories of the old. There was this girl. It was back when we were a little kid. To find out the truth regarding one of the most enduring tales in American A world. story behind the story. Because it's just a story. Hello and welcome to the Just A Story Podcast. I'm Jake. And I'm Sam. And we're here to tell you a story. Each week we take a look at the stories that we tell over and over again. What our fears and fables, myths and misdeeds say about us as humans. Welcome back to all of our wonderful listeners. I think we have the best looking listeners in the whole world. I can tell. <laughs> we can see you. Did you know that when you're listening to us, we can see you. Unless you close your eyes. That's disturbing. I want to thank all of our listeners. We've also had some more reviews on iTunes. I want to thank everybody that's rated and reviewed us, including ZA fan that said we're better than lore. No comment, but thanks. Holy cow. <laughs> Gail Ann Heard, girl, you got my number. And we also have Grace Ariel from Australia, who's writing about how addicted she is to us. They haven't yet come up with a treatment for that, so... Moderate use. Best with mild to moderate use, yes. And I want to remind everybody that Audio Dime Museum, the second season, has just come out. So please head over and check out that fun thing that we're doing. We're very excited to be exploring the world of the circus. For some interesting historical storytelling, head over to Audio Dime Museum. Also, I just want to remind everyone that we have the Just a Story hotline, and we would love to hear from you there. And Will did give us a call back, and he wants to hear about the Headless Motorcyclist, which is an Ohio urban legend. Oh, that's going to happen. Yeah, definitely. And so that number for anyone who would like to call is 512-222-3375. And speaking of the Just a Story hotline, this week's episode idea comes from actually a lot of people. We've had tons of requests for this. Yeah. And the most recent one was someone that called in. On the Just a Story hotline. To tell us we need to talk about La Lorena. La Lorena. La Lorena. La Lorena. Yeah, I'm going to screw this up. (laughs) How is it that you cannot, like, it? I feel like it's that scene in Friends where she's like, je m'appelle Joey, and he's like, je ne plus bleu. Like, I feel like that's what's happening. It's pretty much right. Yeah. 
So, La Arena. Okay, better, but no. I hope we get an onslaught of listener emails. It's like, he says everything like it's French. It happens. But this is a story that has been told in Hispanic, particularly Mexican and Mexican-American folklore for a very long time. So long, in fact, no one's sure exactly when it started. So, for those of you who are not familiar with the story, it's about a beautiful woman named Maria. Don't so many good stories start that way? I think so. I went to college. Um, (laughs) And Maria was a low-born woman. She was a peasant, but she may have been the most beautiful woman in the world. She had long, flowing black hair and was commonly known to wear a beautiful white gown. Now, this is where the stories diverge. There are some stories that she married a man who was above her standing, and he would go off to increase his wealth and come home and pay more attention to her children than to her. Other versions of the story say that she just wanted to go out to Fandango dances every night, and her sons really got in the way of that. Sounds like your grandma. Uh, Yeah, the honky-tonk. She just brought my dad with her. Yeah. Set him on the bar. Not a story. In any case, in every case, she's sort of jilted by this man, this object of her affection, and she perceives his lack of interest as a slight. And in some cases, in order to get revenge, and in some cases, in order to make herself more available, she takes her two children down to the river and drowns them. Now, sometimes it's negligence, and sometimes it's intentional, but... Pretty consistently, she regrets her actions, and she has to wander the world to find their souls and return them in order to gain entrance into heaven herself or to be reunited with them. Kind of both, right? Yeah, right. She dies, and God says, no, Mm -mm. (laughs) you can't come in. You have to find the souls of your children that you killed in order to gain entrance into heaven. I think that's fair. Good call, God. I glad you agree with him. I do. I do. On this, at least. I take issue with the shellfish thing, but whatever. La Llorena is the crier, the weeping woman. And whenever people come upon her, she's kind of bansheeing, just wailing and weeping for her children. Sometimes she has a horse face, which is an interesting twist on things. And oftentimes she's either taking the souls of living children or causing them to have accidents around water and drown. Right, and sometimes she's in her white dress and beautiful. Sometimes she's in a black dress and monstrous. Oh, well, there's no symbolic significance to that. Nah. Nah. Ask Alfred Hitchcock. But you're right. This story has so many variations because it is a true urban legend folktale. It changes with the times. It changes with what's going on, but it does have those consistencies. It's very interesting because people do say, well, maybe it has these European origins. It has some things that are similar to some European tales, like he's mm-hmm. the Banshee. Mm-hmm. And some other ones to talk about in a second. But it is very closely tied to a kind of historical folk tale that, as a lot of folk tales and legends do, has a few historical components, but then goes off into legend from there. Legends can involve historical figures, by definition. Myths do not, and folk tales are passed only through oral tradition. Right, so those are your, like, very standard definitions. Yes. And this story fits all of them, (laughs) in a way. It's its own... mm, Mashup? 
It's a mashup. Yeah, it's a remix. It's a magical mystery mashup remix. Remix. So many people feel that it does have origins way back to 1502. So in Mexico, before the arrival of Hernando Cortez and the Conquistadors. Really? Yes. Okay. It sounds like a band, right? It sounds like a French band. <laughs> Screw you. Uh, in Mayan tradition, it's claimed that they heard a woman crying a forewarning about some terrible occurrence upon the land. And so they were like, oh shit, let's get out of here. They retreated into the forest, so they did not have as terrible things occur to them from Cortez and the Conquistadors. Okay, so she protected them from the Conquistadors. Yes. Okay. But Moctezuma was not convinced of this premonition, and he thought, as is kind of everybody knows, that Cortez resembled their god, Quetzalcoatl, brought him in, sent him gifts and things. So he went against the wishes of the foresighted warning woman. Right. That's never a good move. Right. And so in the Aztec tradition, he sends an offering of a bunch of women to Cortez and his men. How generous of him. I'm sure they were very pleased. I think the conquistadors were pleased. And one of those women was Dana Marina. And she was very gifted with language. And eventually Cortez found out about this and... Assume possession of her. Oh my god. Okay. It was it was centuries ago. We don't still treat women this way. Not a bit. No. No. Okay. And so he used her knowledge of language and the people and the land to help conquer the area. So she was kind of like the squanto of her day. Well, she's actually really known as a traitor. Oh. Oh, because did she actively help him or did well, he just like take it? Well, that's... A good question. Okay. And something that folklorists and historians debate constantly. Well, they debate everything constantly, don't they? Right, but this is a hot topic. Oh, okay. She's also known as La Malinche, meaning the traitor. Oh, oh, that's a nice yeah. moniker. Yeah. I'm sure she's thrilled about that. So this is all kind of historical. Kind of. Ish. Yeah, ish. And from this is when we go off into myth. Supposedly, Donna Marina had a son with Cortez. And Cortez was going to return to Spain, and he, of course, wanted to bring his son along with him. Donna Marina was going to have none of this. I don't think that's in a course. I think so. Oh, yeah. Bring the bastard baby home with you? Really? You think that's a given? Sure. All right. Yeah, I'm not leaving my son in Mexico. Okay. You're giving him way more credit than I would have, but okay. So, he's going to bring his bouncing baby boy back to Spain. Right. And Donna Marina is convinced that he will die on this voyage. Why? Just Well, first of all, I mean, of course, it's a long sea voyage. It's not exactly the safest of things to bring a small child on. Why? I'm kidding. <laughs> she also is worried that if he dies away from his land, or from this land, that his soul will be separated from them. From his people? Yes. And it would wonder and never rest. Because he's, like, not part of the culture that he's going to. So that separation... Okay, sorry. I'm overanalyzing. Okay. I trust her judgment. I, I don't want to be like all Montezuma. So I'm going to go ahead and go with her on this one. And so instead of parting with her son, she decides that she is going to drown him. And I'm off board. So she does. And whenever she goes to go to heaven, God will not allow her through the gates because her son's soul has floated away. And she is now cursed to wander the rivers and its tributaries on a relentless quest 
to find her son's soul. Oh, that sounds kind of familiar. Yeah, exactly. Right. So, so this may be the origin of the La Llorena story. Right. And some folklorists say this. And some say it's not. Some say it's not. But it's a separate story. Very emphatically, I'm sure. Yes. Definitely. Entire, literally entire books written about it. <laughs> I read way too much of I love you guys. Y'all are so funny. So are there other versions of Weeping Women? Oh, of course. There's so many. But there are a lot that are tied very closely to this. Okay. And they're not exactly tied as in, oh, this led to this led to this. Some are, some aren't. A lot of folklorists point to a German folk tale about a peasant girl that was deceived and abandoned by a nobleman, has a child by him, is mad that the nobleman abandons her, kills the child, kills the dad, hangs herself. Okay, so I'm going to go ahead and point out the big obvious difference. This story has her killing the spouse, the father. Yeah, and from what I've read, there are probably a hundred versions of it. She doesn't always drown him. It's not drowning necessarily. Okay, and I think that's pretty key to La Llorena because she's geographically tied to bodies of water in this culture. Yes, it is an important key element of the story. Another great version that is tied more to water is in the Philippines. Okay. Where they have a weeping woman, and she's a siren. Mm-hmm. And these are mer people. Merman father. Merman. And so these mer people, they have mer babies. Okay. <laughs> and on the like, fo- the like a like a merman and a mer woman have a mer baby, like a little nuclear mer family. Yes. Okay. So yes. yes. Okay. So it's not like. No, only one merman, one mer woman. Okay. Is marriage mer marriage mer marriage? Well, I'm sorry, they're not as progressive as the rest of us. But they do allow their children to transition. So on their 14th birthday. <laughs> okay. Well. On their 14th birthday, the children are allowed to decide if they want to be human or mer people. So the weeping woman story, one of her children, her daughter, decides to become human, but she is inadvertently killed by a fisherman. So the weeping woman is sad about this and is out to seek revenge on humans, and when children drown or disappear... Many believe she is you know, exacting her revenge. Okay, so the the woman is the mother in the story. Yes. She's the mermother. Mermother. The murder. So you have a woman, but the revenge element to me is very different. Well, it depends, because a lot of the Lollarina stories have her causing drownings of small children. Well, I think it's more like accidental, like she thinks like maybe they have the children's souls? No? She's just mean? Sometimes she is. Sometimes she's a very negative spirit sometimes she is a very positive spirit that's something that's interesting about her is that she takes on different roles depending on who's telling the story just like any good legend okay fine well maybe the philippines have more in common with her than i think and so let's go way back in time way back to where all the good myths start <laughs> is it going to be greece greece yay so of course greece we have zeus oh and he i'm sure he impregnates someone and hera gets pissed Yes! Oh, God! I'm so good at this game. (laughs) As all good Greek myths go. So, Zeus is uh, fooling around with Lamia. As Zeus is wont to do. And has several children by her. That's more than fooling around. It's kind of what always happens. His god seed. (laughs) And so, Hera finds out. And she gets pissed. And kills the children. Okay. She doesn't stop there, though. Of course not. She causes Lamia to not be able to close her eyes without seeing her dead children. 
Hera is a bitch, man. <laughs> like, but she's like, she's crafty and cagey, man. She doesn't just like, she thinks about that shit. But Zeus is crafty too. And, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, well, lots of ways. And he allows Lamea to be able to remove her eyes so that she can rest and put them back in. Wait, put her eyes back in? Yes. <laughs> like taking your dentures out? Sure. You think she keeps or, a little glass of water by the bed? Or taking your glasses off. Oh, okay, fine. <laughs> Whatever. I like the dentures thing better. She is also credited with roaming the earth, seeking revenge for the wrongful death of her children, mm. taking children, killing them, etc. Also, sometimes she has a snake body. Whatever. It's just so violent. Like, it's just so macabre. Like, ugh. And then you can't mention all this old mythology about mm-hmm. crazy women killing children mm-hmm. without mentioning Lilith. Oh, yes. Lilith had a bit of a problem with children. And so we talked a lot about her in our... Sleep paralysis? Yeah. Sleep paralysis episode? Yeah. So that's on the feed somewhere. And if you want to find out more about Lilith, we are going to recommend that you go back and check that out. While all these stories have some things in common... All the versions of La Llorena have a lot of things in common. They do. Okay, so when folklorists are not debating one another, they do have another function in the world. Now, I know that's hard to believe. Don't believe me. They do. They classify folktales. It's almost science. It's as science as it gets. <laughs> so when they're doing the analysis of different folktales, they'll chart key elements of different stories. And major variations are classified as different tale types, and each supporting detail or key factor is given its own designation and logged behind the tale type. This is really dry stuff. I'm sorry. Yeah, it's like letters, numbers. Yeah, there's a secret code and a secret handshake, and I will be willing to talk more with you about it if you're actually interested. But La Urena is one of those that has a few really consistent Consistent details that make it a unique story. For sure, definitely. Those involve either a cultural, class, or racial difference between a pair of lovers. And then, at some point, the male lover must abandon the female lover. And there's always an episode in which the children are killed. And with La Llorena, it's pretty specifically drowning. Right, definitely. Always associated with water. And then, she has to go crazy. Yes. She has to wander the earth. And cry. And cry and scream and weep. Also, she's usually at one point beautiful. Right. Because she it has, has to, to do with vanity and pride. The feminine aspect of it. She has right. to be ultra feminine. In some cases, she gets to stay pretty. In other cases, she is transformed by her deed. Right. Becoming the monster in black. Or the horse head, apparently. The horse head thing was news to me. I had not heard of that until you just said it. Yeah. I just read like three books on this. I think that's pretty, I think it's kind of new. And then you can look at the bones of the story and kind of get a sense of what the essential morals or cultural encodings are that they're trying to pass on to the listeners. Yeah, because as we always talk about, these folktales, urban legends, you're teaching something. Mm -hmm. There's a moral to it. Okay, so it teaches people not to go outside of their social class when they're looking for a mate. Right. Very important. And one folklorist, John O. West, had a great quote. He said, The most frequent use of this story is aimed at romantic teenaged girls. 
to warn them against falling for a young man who is far above them to consider marriage. Isn't that sweet? Yeah, and it's kind of this really classist depiction of women. It's a classist depiction of society. This is a stratified, hardline, rigid structure. Right, but these women are usually like peasants or like native women. Oh, and okay. And there's no way they can go above their social class. Right, it is the ultimate enforcement of the glass ceiling. For sure. But yes, it, it does communicate a lack of social mobility to women. It also encourages men not to go messing around with no hussies. That's right. Or they'll kill your children. <laughs> and of course it's used as a scare tactic to make sure that kids stay in the house, come back after dark. Stay out of the water if they don't know how to swim. Right. How about that? That's, For sure. that's a very practical application. I think I'm going to tell our kids about this. <laughs> oh, poor children. And you know I'll tell it's scary. Okay, and it also teaches that women are not to seek romantic or sexual relationships for their own gratification. Right, that is such a common theme in all of these urban legends. I feel like we talk about it it's so like often. It's like the aspirin between your knees. That's right. Folklore is the aspirin between your knees. Let's make bumper stickers. <laughs> T-shirt. So there's just some great Chicana writing about La Lorena. La Llorena. About La Llorena. And one poet and theorist, Cordelia Candelaria, says, A tale teaches that girls get punished for conduct for which men are rewarded. That pleasure, especially sexual gratification, is sinful for women. That female independence and personal agency create monsters capable of destroying even their offspring. Yeah, and I don't know if it is... Like, when I read that, I'm like, yeah, that's totally recognizable. And I feel like I grew up with kind of a cultural ethos that sort of propagated the same set of ideas. And I don't know that's because I grew up in the small town in the South, if it has something to do with that heavy religious background or what it is. But, like, that does not look that foreign to me. And I don't think she's reaching. No, I really don't think she is. She cites, like, another story that she's written about girls playing house Mm -hmm. at night. And they're, you know, playing husband and wife mm-hmm. and, you know, doing, you know, husband wife things and like taking care of the house, but also like hugging and kissing and things like that. And that can also be a tale against like this other sexual gratification and lesbianism and homosexuality. What happens to them like when that. they're playing house? Does something she bad just, happen? Well, the, like the grandmother comes out, you know, fusses at him. Oh, y'all need to come in. Stop doing that. La Llorena is going to come and get you. Um, okay, so it's stopping the girls from connecting Yes. physically. Interesting. Basically, it's a big, fat cultural cock block. For sure. Okay. <laughs> and then I think it's interesting because there's a lot of emphasis on Mary worship in the Catholic Church, which is kind of the backbone of that Spanish or Hispanic culture especially in the Americas where there's so many missions and things like that. That culture sort of venerates that positive mother image of Mary to a really great degree. And so what is the Mr. Hyde to that Dr. Jekyll? Right. So you have, you know, Lady of Guadalupe, Mm -hmm. who is that classic, perfect mother, feminine figure, especially in this culture in the Catholic Church. There was stained glass of her at the church I went to growing up. And on the opposite end of the spectrum is La Llorena. So what is Our Lady of Guadalupe? Uh, Well, I mean, she is a vision that was seen by a Mexican child. And whenever 
collecting flowers. Release the cloth that she was collecting flowers in has a beautiful depiction of the Virgin Mary on it. And so that you can still see. Okay. Yeah. So it is a vision, a specific encounter with the Virgin Mary that is geographically located in Mexico? Yes. Okay. Got it. And so on that opposite end of it, you have La Llorena. So you have this feminine symbol of transcendence, salvation, motherness. Piety. <laughs> exactly. And then on the other side, you have this subversive feminine spirit that is often philandering with these men she shouldn't be that are above her social class. She's vain and prideful and pretty and sexy and we hate her. Yes. She must be destroyed. And then she kills her children. Because she's terrible, obviously. That's what they want you to think. I didn't really want to talk about La Urena for a while because I didn't want to talk about maternal filicide. 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 So, what is filicide? It is the murder of a son or daughter. So when you say that, I think of like infanticide. Infanticide is different. Infanticide pertains specifically to the killing of a live infant shortly after birth. Okay. Okay. So this is like children. Yeah. Like they're on the grid. And there are very high rates of maternal filicide in both Brazil and Nigeria. And the United States is actually ranked number seven. All right. We're ranked high on something. Yeah. That's not a high ranking you want. That's mothers killing babies. So maternal filicide specifically is mothers killing their sons or daughters. One of the leading causes of death of small children from between 5 and 14 years old is homicide, specifically maternal filicide. Right. Children in that age group are far more likely to be killed by their own parents than some stranger, which is confounding when you consider all the like sort of propaganda that's out there warning children not to talk to strangers, etc. Well, we always talk about that. You've talked about that about sexual assault as well. Things like this are more likely to occur from people you know. But isn't it more comfortable to think that it's going to be some scary stranger that conks you on the head and drags you into the bushes? Of course, it's going to be that outsider. So, on average, according to the FBI, according to the FBI statistics, 450 children are murdered by their parents each year in the United States. That's ridiculous. And it's also different from familicide, which is taking out the entire family. You know, one interesting thing I saw when researching this was that the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children reported that women are likely to dispose of their children's bodies in a way that returns them to the womb. So they, like, swaddle them or wrap them in plastic or submerge them in water. Well, that's interesting. Yeah, so obviously related to La Llorena. Right, so it's not that far off. I actually do think that that is a very convincing MO for a mother. It's not like she like, just, like does something more despicable. Like I, could, I think that that's actually a very real-world scenario. Uh, the water, I mean, the drowning. Well, you know, there are lots of different motivations for maternal filicide. Yes, I do know. There are five that were cited recently. Uh, in 2007, by Friedman and Resnick. And it was actually pretty controversial when they came out because it allows for women not to be insane. It offers motives that would not necessarily cause a jury or a judge to render a verdict of not guilty by reason of insanity. So you can be sane and murder your kids. Crazy. You know, before we go into the five types, an interesting thing you brought up was in their study, they found that 
no Hispanic cases were reported. Well, it was a small study, so I'm like, I'm concerned that that may be just bad sample, but I do think it's really interesting that in the study I looked at, all of the cases reported were either Caucasian or African American. Right, I'm sure it exists, but it's interesting that it's a small percentage. I know. Well, that's because La Arena gets them. That's right. It wasn't me, it was La Arena. That's going to hold up. Okay, so the five types as cited by Friedman and Resnick of maternal filicide are altruistic, acutely psychotic, fatal maltreatment, unwanted child, or spousal revenge. Let's talk about each one of these in depth a little bit more. Sure, so the first one is altruistic. So altruistic meaning that you're doing it for the best interest of the children. Okay. And so it's them being unselfish in an odd way. So this includes a lot of homicide-suicide cases, which I felt was really interesting because Resnick talks about how women often see their children as extensions of themselves. And so that line blurs. So sometimes it leads to those homicide-suicide cases. Right, where women might be suicidal and they think their child can't live without them or would never have a good life without them, so they just take them out too? Sure. Okay. Resnick also says... The woman is still trying to be a good mother, but no longer knows what to do. So, good lighthearted fun this episode. Do you know of an example of a mother who would be classified as an altruistic maternal philocytist? So, one woman that definitely fits this case is Michelle Blair. And so, she was a mother who actually killed two of her children. Hmm. And she did this whenever her youngest child made allegations that he was being raped by his older siblings. Okay, so how old were the children that she disposed of? So there was a boy and a girl, Stoney and Stephen. They mm -hmm. were 13 and 9. And there's really no evidence that they had done this. But the mom always talked about it. She talked about what? Rape. Oh. She had had some really terrible life experiences in the past. She had been raped as a child. And... Her family had refused to really believe her, didn't do anything about it. And it's really stuck with her. And so whenever her child, who she had warned constantly, tell her if anything like this was happening, said that their older siblings were doing this, she went a little, little philicide-y. Oh, well. So she tortured the kids. She had them drink Windex. Right, and this happened like nine months apart, right? Like there was, The first one was the girl... Yeah. Stoney, who was 13, and then nine months later, she killed Stephen, who was nine. But the episodes are remarkably similar. Right. She threw scalding water on them. On their groin areas. Yes. And even smothered them in the bathtub, putting plastic bags over their heads. Mm. Stoney was found to have blows to the head that were too many to count with several hemorrhages. And Stephen had countless burns. It looks like branding. And they actually found the bodies in a freezer. God. Because she sold the freezer and forgot to take the bodies out. I think at that point, you want to get caught. I think she wanted to get caught. Like, I can't think it was an oversight. Well, she said that she was scared to report it. She was scared she would lose custody. She wanted to turn herself in at one time and was talked out of it. By her son. And so she put Stephen in the freezer. And she says that she's... Glad she didn't turn herself in, because then she couldn't have killed Stoney. Oh, did I have the order wrong? Well, oh, sorry. But you know, she was 
found competent by the forensic psychologist to stand trial. She came across as angry, but willing to confront this situation. She immediately said, like, I'm not crazy. I want to face this. I want the death penalty. I mean, I feel like that's just there's so many conflicting emotions. I, I don't think like you absolutely cannot condone what she did. She wanted to report that her son was being sexually abused by her other children, but she was afraid that all of her children would be taken away from her. And I guess you can look and see like a little bit of that child as an extension of myself. They wouldn't be okay without me logic in her decision to just take care of the problem herself. Right, and she's also dealing with the maternal instinct, you know, wanting to take care of her children, but she's trying to protect one child from the other children. It's so complicated. Like, I can't even imagine what her mental state is. And then if you factor in, like, PTSD, which I really do think this is like a trigger for her. Oh, for sure. You know, she's acting out a lot of anger that she's built up over years of, you know, not her parents or her mother not confronting what happened to her and not allowing her to speak out about it. She's probably built up a ton of rage and it's just all coming out in a really dark and awful way. I I do think that like the talk about raping someone's the worst thing you can do. If anything like that ever happens to you, you tell me. It's like when you tell your kid, don't say the word stupid. And they get so mad at you one day that they're like, you're stupid. And they like glare at you because they know it's going to make you angry. I feel like there's some of that. Well, also... He knew the ultimate weapon to use against his siblings. Right. And I don't know if that's the case. I don't know what was going on, but it's just horrible. I mean, just heart-wrenching that this happened. And this happened recently. And, you know, the children were missing for two years before she sold the freezer. Oh, no. This is in Detroit, like, last year, huh? It was recent, definitely. And so, in this altruistic case, she thought that she was helping the child out. She thought that she was protecting him, even if it was against his own siblings. There's one off the list. So let's move on to the acutely psychotic. So this is the one where you still could get the non-guilty by insanity. And a lot of people do. So we discussed Andrea Yates at one point. She would definitely fall in this category, although she was found guilty because it's because Texas. All right, for once, <laughs> we got it right. And then you have um, the case of Rebecca Amaya. Now, she was a mother who, in 2003, killed both of her children. She stated that a spider crawled across her hand, and it was a sign that she was meant to kill Grace, who was four, and her six-month-old, Gabriel. Um, she believed that there were evil spirits in her children and in her house. And she claimed that her six-month-old told her, Go ahead. Do it, Mommy. Get it done. Get it done. So she drowned them in the bathtub. Well, so that definitely there you see those command hallucinations that you can see in a psychotic person. Right. Because obviously the five, six-month-old did not actually tell her this. No, it would be very impressive if he had. Yeah, and that was actually like the reasoning that the psychologist gave. It was like, obviously this didn't happen. She's psychotic. And it's thought that she had postpartum psychosis which is a real thing definitely a real thing so it's the extreme of postpartum depression and related to having psychotic episodes after having a kid and are hallucinations commonplace in that type of psychosis well in psychosis you in have general okay so she drowned both of the children in her bathtub so a drowning 
Yeah. And her husband came home and found them unconscious. And she'd cut her wrist, taken prescription drugs, and drank a bunch of wine. And had written a note. It was like less than 10 words. They said, and I, I couldn't find anywhere where that had been released. Like the contents of that note had been released. And she confessed and like knew very clearly that she'd held especially the infant under the water until he stopped breathing. And she was found not guilty by reason of insanity, but she is in a facility. Yeah, she's in a psych facility. And then there's fatal maltreatment. So this is something I've personally come across. So this is something where death is not usually the anticipated outcome. And I immediately think of, in this case, Munchausen's by proxy. So what's Munchausen's? It's when you pretend that you're sick when you're not in order to get medical attention, correct? Kind of, yes. And so, you might even like go as far as like faking symptoms, like or no, that's part of it. You have to fake the symptoms. Okay, so like, what do people do? So in Munchausen's, you can do things like like affect your blood glucose and things like that if you're diabetic. And in Munchausen's by proxy, it's, you do it to somebody else. You do it to you, oh. and that's usually your child. And so that is something that we see, especially if you're an inpatient or a pediatric ICU. You're going to see cases like this. It's going to happen. And there are lots of different ways you can do it. People have been found in the past to inject their children with feces. Are you... No! Yes. To inject them with insulin, causing hypoglycemic episodes. Sometimes just to lie about the symptoms, like lie about them having pain or having diarrhea... A lot of times these are kids with serious medical conditions, and so you can very easily manipulate them. And there are plenty of cases where parents have caused symptoms by, in a way, using water. Okay. So kids with like feeding tubes and G-tubes and things like that, I mean, again, kids with serious medical issues, can be given water intoxication by just pumping lots of water into their stomach and causing your electrolytes to go all haywire and causing seizures, etc. You can kind of do the opposite by um, doing hyper, causing hypernatremia or an elevated electrolyte level by doing you know, melting salt in water, using that into like a G-tube or a feeding tube and causing the electrolytes to go the opposite way, again, causing seizures, all kind of medical problems, but all using water. There was a case I heard about a while back in which a woman's kid died from, like, salt stuff. Like... Yes, that's the hypernatremia. She said he liked to eat Zatarans. And I just stuck with me because it was Zatarans. I I saw that. I recognize the brand name. It was, like, a kid they adopted, and she had, like, six other kids, and he was like had behavioral issues and stuff. And, like, when they brought him in, they're like, well, maybe it was pica. And there was, like, this huge debate about whether or not he would have eaten that non-food item right. and all this stuff. It, it's crazy. Anyway. And this so. is always something to where it's usually caught by putting the kid in a room with a camera and watching the family do it. Because it's really hard to diagnose otherwise. So, are there, like, nanny cams? Like, do y'all have, like, bears on duty? Like, bears on brigades? Well, we have rooms with uh, cameras for uh, epileptic patients. Oh, okay. And so they um, get... Uh, put in there. <laughs> have you ever caught anybody? Yes. Really? Yes. Oh my god, you're going to have to tell me about it later. I can't tell you on here. <laughs> okay, fine. I just did my HIPAA training <laughs> yesterday. <laughs> I have spousal privilege. <laughs> and another one that is extremely common is the unwanted child. 
And so you can definitely see this in infanticide. Mm-hmm. That's really where this is the most common. Right. Where they're killed kind of right after birth. It's um, like, oops, I shouldn't have done that. Control Z. Yeah, it doesn't work like that. Sorry, guys. But in this, the child is seen as a hindrance. You know, mom wants to either, you know, go out in the town, a social butterfly, or stopping them from having another relationship. Or, in some cases, the parents are just unprepared or overwhelmed by the needs of the child. That is more common in the kind of infanticide Is cases. that like, would shaken baby, like, count here? Yes, it definitely would, but again, more common in infanticide. And so, our case for an unwanted child is Miss Nicole Dyer, and she drowned her four-year-old son. They're not exactly sure if that is what happened, because that house just... Happened to burn down. Interesting. But they did find the tub full of water. Very interesting. And also, when they were doing the autopsy there, they did not find any indication that he had breathed in excess carbon monoxide. Mm-hmm. So He was already dead before that yeah. happened. But his body was too badly burned to definitively establish the right. cause of death. It's like most likely drowning. No clear evidence. But... She thought that her son was hampering her social life. As children are wont to do. <laughs> well, they do do that. She was said to get drunk at his funeral. She went bowling and danced the electric slide and sang YMCA karaoke that night. So a good old homespun fun good time. Wholesome yeah. fun was had by all. After killing her child and burning her house down. I don't want to be her friend. Like, not even Facebook friends. Like, I th- I think she's a horrible human. That's, like... It's one thing to dance the electric slide. I That's already ter- have a problem. Terrible enough. <laughs> I already have a problem. Stop posting vines of that. It's another thing to do it on the day that, that you bury your four-year-old child. And yeah, everybody grieves differently, but... Not with the electric slide. That is on. not on the stages of grief hierarchy. <laughs> so that leads to our last type of maternal filicide. Spousal revenge. That sounds familiar. All of these sound familiar. They do, don't they? Huh. Huh. Sounds a lot like our legend. Okay. So, this one is very complex, and there are clearly sexual and romantic motivations behind the murder that takes place. Yeah, this case kind of fits several of the types. Yes. It's probably the closest to the La Llorena legend. And this is the case of Susan Smith, who murdered her sons on October 25th, 1994, in South Carolina. She's a class act. She claimed that her vehicle was carjacked by a black man. Oh my. Not a black man. Surely not. That makes it 20% worse. Like, just, this, just the blatant racism of it all. But anyway, so he, she claims that he carjacked her and took her car with her two sons still inside, and she doesn't know where he went or what he did. She must have been struck with grief. She was. For nine days, she went on national news begging with this mysterious black man who appeared out of the ether to return her sons and bring them home safe. But then on November 3rd, she confessed that she might have maybe accidentally just a little bit kind of killed him. Why'd she confess? So she kind of got caught in a lie. She got caught red-handed? Yeah. She claimed that she had to stop at this light, and there were no other cars around, and no one would have possibly seen it, but the light turned red, and she had to stop, and this guy just appeared out of nowhere, 
and took her car. Puff of black smoke. Poof. But investigators went to that light and looked and realized that it had a sensor and that the light would only turn red if there were a car approaching from the opposite direction, like from like a perpendicular crossing. So she was caught. By a red light. And so when that was brought to her attention, she got very nervous and then just kind of everything came out. And she confessed that she had strapped her children into their car seats um, because safety is important. And then gone to a boat ramp and put the car in drive and taken the brake off and let the car roll into the water while the children were sleeping in the back seat. She sounds like a class act. Yes. She and her husband were going through a very difficult divorce process that had been kind of ongoing since the birth of their first child. And also, she was very interested in this man who was just out of her reach socially. Hmm. Her boss. Interesting. And they had been having a sexual relationship, but he eventually sent her a letter, kind of like a Dear John letter, like, it's just not going to work out. And at that point, she lost it. He stated that he didn't want a family, and they had just really big differences in their backgrounds. They were just from different kinds of families and ran in different circles. In this letter to her where he ended their relationship, he told her, If you want to catch a nice guy like me one day, you have to act like a nice girl. And you know, nice girls don't sleep with married men. And at the time, she still had a sexual relationship with this guy. Also with... Her ex-husband, or soon-to-be ex-husband. Estranged husband, I think, is the technical term. And also with her stepfather? Yeah, yeah. He began molesting her when she was around 13, and their relationship continued, I guess, until she was incarcerated. Yeah, and so, I mean, it's important to point out that all of these cases really do have a psychological component to it. Psychological? Yeah, obviously. Yeah, I mean, well, you you said earlier, these people can't claim insanity and that's true a lot of them can't but they do have things like ptsd major depressive disorder borderline personality disorder you know things like that there these are not exactly people in their right mind no but the legal definition of insanity is knowing that your actions are wrong at the time that you commit them i'm talking about the medical definition ma'am there is no (laughs) medical definition of insanity no it's a purely legal term i know and that's stupid (laughs) That's my medical opinion. I know, and that's stupid. (laughs) Who are you? I'm rubber, and you're glue. (laughs) So, throughout her marriage with her husband, there had been mutual allegations of infidelity. They were not on good terms, and it's believed that she knew what she had done to the children would hurt him. It also cleared her social calendar and made her available to the man from a higher social class who did not want to have a family. So she not only fits with a lot of the different definitions of maternal filicide or the different classifications, she also really ties in very well with La Llorena. And so, you know, we have a mother who is trying to get with somebody above her social class, kills her children in relation to it. Is there anything else that ties her into this? Oh, just the fact that this... Spirit may have come back and killed seven more people. What? <laughs> this isn't ghost stories. No ghost stories. We're a little creepy sometimes, but not not. We don't believe in ghost stories. 
Okay, well. Except sometimes. Except sometimes. I think this is a sometimes. You want to hear about the sometimes? Please do. So, in 1996, a bunch of people in a suburban went out to look at the monument that had been erected to Smith's sons, Michael and Alex, who were three and 14 months at the time of their deaths. And at the spot where the car rolled into the lake, they had put up a monument. And they went out at night, and they'd parched the suburban so that the lights would shine on the monument and they could see it. And the car was in park, but it began to roll into the water. And all seven of the people inside the Suburban went into the water in the car and drowned. No. Yes. The spirit came back. <laughs> right? Ooh. Okay. Oh, no. she's still alive. <laughs> so it's not her spirit. Maybe it's the kids. Ooh. Maybe we've been looking at the wrong person all along. Spooky. Yeah. She fits, right? Oh, definitely. You know, but we're talking a lot about women. I mean, we've got to talk about men, right? Yeah, they're part of this world, too. They deserve equal rights. Men's rights. (laughs) I mean, if we're going to talk about a bunch of murderous women, we need to talk about at least one murderous man. Okay, that's fair. So, paternal filicide. Fun fact. One of the most common factors contributing to paternal filicide or the murder of children by their father, is a loss of status. Okay, so it's very different than maternal. Correct. They might have gotten demoted, they might have lost a job, they might have been transferred, or taken a pay cut. Typically, it is in a public sphere. The injury to their ego happens in a public sphere. Okay, so that's what leads them down this path? It is a very common one. Spousal revenge is also a factor and you know in an effort to punish the wife or if they lose custody of the children a lot of times it's kind of like if that i can't have them nobody can kind of move okay yeah it's it's cute there was a guy in colorado that blew up his house with his two kids inside kind of over that great sword and scale episode about it should go listen to that also a great sword and scale episode about michelle blair highly recommend that podcast there's just a great podcast called Sword and scale. You should probably go listen to it. It's awesome. One of my absolute favorites. So, like, you know, like, pause. Pause. Go listen to it. And come back to your favorite podcast. We'll be here waiting. It's fine for you to wonder as long as you have permission. We're giving you a free pass. Don't tell your friends. All right. So, men are much more likely to commit familicide. So, that's killing the whole family. Yeah. Everybody. Everybody. Wife included. So that fits with the German legend more. For sure. Which, it is the fatherland. So my best example of a really crazy... I think he would be the male La Llorena. I have... I'm going to make an offering to you. Does he wear wear a white dress? He wears horn-rimmed glasses. Kind of looks like a horse. But I'm going to offer this, and I'm going to say that if there were to be a male version of La Arena, it would be this guy. And then I want to talk about why it can't work. So give an example of a, <laughs> a female that it definitely fits that classic story. What's, what's the male? Okay. Give us our man moment. Meat and boobs. That's the man moment, right? Just taking a blowjob day. Exactly. I digress. I'm going to tell you the story of Mr. John Emil List. In New Jersey, on November 9, 1971, John List murdered his entire family. 
and no one realized that that had happened until December 7th, 1971. Oh, that smell must have been wonderful. Well, it was a big house, and it was all sealed up. Neighbors called the cops only after the lights, which had been on for a month straight, started to die. And they noticed that the same lights were out every day and that there were more and more of them. So somebody eventually connected the dots. So the cops came. They thought somebody might be trying to break in. Something weird was going on. Family was out of town. They didn't know what was happening. So they broke down a window and entered the home and were immediately confronted with the smell of death. And there was dried blood all over the place. And blaring over the intercom was organ music. Is this like a bad horror movie you watched last night? No, it's real. That makes it even worse. I know. So inside, they found Helen, who was 46, Patricia, who was 16, John Jr., who was 15, and Frederick, who was 13. And somewhere away from the rest of the family was Alma, John's mother, who was 85 years old. So they found them sitting there playing Uno? No, they found them in sleeping bags, all shot in the head in the ballroom. Each one had a piece of cloth covering their face. And all of the family members who were downstairs, so the wife and all the children, had been shot execution style in the back of the head. Lovely. What about the mother? Well, as John stated in a letter, mother is in the attic hallway. She was too heavy to move. Great. And she was the only one who'd been shot in the face. I think that says something. Yeah. John might have had a little problem with his mom. He'd shot his wife first while she was in the kitchen. And then he'd gone upstairs and shot his mom in the face and left her there. And then he went into his study and spent the day writing letters. And then his children got home from school and he brought them inside and shot them both in the back of the head. And then he went and watched his son's soccer game, his elder son, John. And when they got home, he brought him inside and shot him in the back of the head. But he twitched. Uh Uh-oh. So he shot him ten more times. Oh, shit's moving. (laughs) Someone's going to find out I've done something. He was very methodical. He called a woman who he shared carpool duty with and let her know that they were going to be out of town. And then he wrote notes and sent them to the school and the kids' part-time jobs, explaining they were going to North Carolina to visit his wife's mother, who was ill. He canceled all deliveries, including mail, newspapers, and milk, because it was the 1970s, and apparently some people still got milk delivered. He went to the bank and closed his account and his mother's account, methodically went through every family photo in the home, and cut out his own face. That also says a lot. I don't know if that was like a forensic countermeasure. If he was like, oh, they'll never find me. I mean, this is pre-internet, right? So if he, if he was like, if I don't leave any photos, they won't know what I look like and they won't be able to catch me. Yeah, but don't all the neighbors know what he looks like? Right, but could you draw a picture? But doesn't the job know what he looks like? Yeah, I mean, they have sketch artists. Okay, it's like fair. your dream job. Yeah, true. Okay, so probably just crazy. I, mean, um, I think there was an element of, oh, hey, let me take myself out of the picture. And there probably was a thought, like, oh, they can't find me. But, I mean, in reality, if he was thinking straight, which obviously he wasn't. He was and he wasn't. That's what's so confusing about it. Like, he borrowed some books from his neighbor, and he left them all neatly stacked with a note saying who they went back to. Oh, that's so lovely. On a table, like, where they would be found. He left a bunch of notes, right? Oh, he left a bunch of notes. He left a note that said, to finder, just an open letter to whoever might come in the house. And it explained where the documents he'd written could be found and he said that they would explain what had happened here 
He left a letter to his employer that explained how he could win new clients and kind of closed up all of his files and made sure that all of his accounts were in order before he skipped town. Then he left letters to like his mother-in-law and his aunt. Just kind of like being like, sorry. Had to kill him. (laughs) Had to kill him. But the best letter of all the letters was to his pastor. Because of course this guy was a Sunday school teacher. They always are. So he lives in this sparsely furnished mansion in New Jersey. And he's an accountant who has like an MBA and is fairly successful, but has trouble holding jobs, but can get them. And he is a Sunday school teacher and a Lutheran and a veteran. So he, you know, just typical murder suspect, right? I don't know. Every time I hear, he taught Sunday school, I'm like, oh shit, he molested somebody. It's not just the molestation, it's also murderers. Like, BTK taught Sunday school. Do you think they're just, like, trying to atone for their sins? No, I think they think that God gets it. Oh, like, God's up for this. Yeah, God made me this way. He definitely did think that. Oh, yeah. He absolutely did. So he left a letter to his pastor that was five pages long, and it numerically orders a list of reasons why he had to kill his family. So he is, like, rationalizing everything. Uh, Every forensic psychiatrist that looked at this letter is like, oh, yeah, he made this up after he decided to do it. Oh, yeah. It did not seem sincere. So he said that he had money problems. I'm not making nearly enough, he says. He's like, we might have to go on welfare. And just the knowledge that they're on welfare would do permanent damage to the children. Oh, t- yeah, for sure. And he was also very nervous because his daughter Patricia, who was 16, wanted to be an actress when she grew up. Which, she's 16! Like, sh- who doesn't want to do, like, be a fashion designer or some shit like that? I mean, like, yeah, I get that there are people who know what they want to do and have life purpose, whatever. But she wants to be an actress. What 16-year-old doesn't want to do something like that. But he was very concerned that if she became an actress, she was not going to be a Christian anymore. And his wife... Not a good Christian like him. No, not a good Christian like him. His wife had stopped going to church, and he was very concerned that if she did not continue to go to church, his children's attendance would suffer as well. And his wife also had, like, medical issues, right? Uh, Just syphilis. Tertiary syphilis. Yeah, just which syphilis. Is really uncommon these days. Right. Which um, I find that very interesting. It's like anytime you're like, oh, this famous author died of syphilis or whatever, they die of tertiary syphilis. That's when it goes like into the brain and eats your brain. Nietzsche? Yes. Fun list. Good list to be on. This woman did not get to die of syphilis. He made sure of that. He also said that he got down and prayed after each one. He was confident that what he'd done would allow his family to go to heaven. And he said that his mother got involved because I knew that what I had done to my family would be very hard for her to take. I want to know if he dressed as his mother after this. Probably. I mean, he he absconded, so maybe he wore a, a woman's disguise. We didn't get that juicy detail. Got a lot of other details, though. He also said that his wife and the children had made it clear that they wanted to be cremated and to make sure that costs were kept low. Ever the accountant. <laughs> Right. He said that his mother needed to be buried and like gave the guy's address and who to talk to. And like, this is her nephew. He'll know what arrangements need to be made. This is like what happens when an accountant goes crazy. Yes, it is. Besides like stealing all your money and running away to Jamaica with a prostitute. This is the other option. Let's go to Jamaica. I'm just saying. There's also a quote that says, I'm sure many will say, how could anyone do such a horrible thing? All I can say is that it isn't easy 
and it was only done after much thought. P.S. Mother's in the hallway in the attic. She was too heavy for me to move. Just let that sink in. Only done after much thought, but oops. <laughs> Mother's in the attic. Okay, so this guy just vanished. He vanished for 18 years. Wow, he was good. He was very good. Isn't that methodicalness really worked out? Yes, because he had a, a month-long lead on anybody even knowing his family was dead. He managed to get away and, like, reinvent himself. So he kind of wandered around, you know, like La Arena for 18 years. Well, how did they find him? Okay, that's a really good story. So, have you heard of a television program called America's Most Wanted? I met John Walsh. When? When I was in eighth grade in Washington, D.C. That's amazing. I'm jealous. He's awesome. Like, do you know how many people that show has been responsible for capturing? Oh, yeah, a bunch. It's amazing. Like, it's, it's, it's a good use of television time. Good job, John Walsh. So, anyway, he airs an episode that features a sculpture of John List, but an artist named Frank Bender, who's a forensic artist, has done an age progression. It's a cool job. It's a really cool job. I'm so jealous that that job exists and I don't have it. He'd done an age progression based on his friend and colleague, Richard Walter, a forensic psychologist, profile of what List life would be like and what his habits and personality indicate that he might do as far as grooming and carrying himself. So they did a long-term age progression and decided together that they should put a certain kind of glasses on him. And they put the bust on America's Most Wanted in one of its early, early episodes. And within two weeks, they'd arrested a man named Bob Clark, who happened to be John List. (laughs) Ah, so someone recognized their neighbor. Their neighbor, their sweet neighbor, who is a churchgoer and a banker, an older man at this point. And they said that the main thing that tipped them off were the glasses, which was just like a gut instinct profiling kind of decision they made. They're like, these are the kind of glasses he'd wear. And they got it so right. So you need to, if you're listening right now, one, go read The Murder Room about the VDOC Society, which was started by Richard Walter and Frank Bender and William Fleischer. Excellent book. Lots about this case in there. But you also need to put in your Google search bar, John List bust Frank Bender with photo. And it'll pull up what his bust looked like and what John List or Bob Clark looked like at the time of his arrest. And it is eerie. It is incredible. Yeah, it's uncanny. So they bring him in. They charge him. He gets charged with five counts of first-degree murder. He is found guilty, and he died in prison at the age of 82. That's amazing how they were able to find him. We can definitely see how this story, even though it's a guy, ties in a little bit with La Llorena, but it's also very different, too. Yeah. Uh, fun fact, he'd also remarried, and his wife had no idea what was going on when the FBI showed up. Oh, my. Oh, honey. <laughs> should explain. I've, I've been married before. Okay, I had children. Okay, I murdered them. Okay. You should put that on your OkCupid profile. Like, if that's you, you need to, people need to know what they're getting into. Interest. Murder. He was not interested. Sunday school. Favorite book. Bible. 
Psycho. <laughs> and the ones I returned to my neighbor. I hope he got those okay. So that's John List, a monstrous, monstrous human. But I think that there are some similarities. Like, he finds his family burdensome and thinks he needs to... He tries to use the maternal filicide motivations in order to excuse what he's done. But if you really look at it, it's like wounded ego. <laughs> the prosecution actually had a psychiatrist testify that it was more of a midlife crisis than anything else. Don't buy a Camaro. Kill your family. <laughs> buy a Camaro. Buy all the Camaros. Even if you can't afford it, just buy them. So we'll figure it out. Just They don't all have to go, especially not poor Alma. So how does he tie in the story otherwise? Well, he wanders around for a, quite a while. But again, it's different. He's not wandering around looking for the souls of his lost children. He's wandering around trying to evade capture. Which, here's a fun fact. The FBI was so annoyed during their search for John List that it became a running joke whenever they went on vacation to send postcards into headquarters from John List. <laughs> Okay, so, I mean, he kills his family, but it's much more related to an ego. He's saying, like, oh, I can't handle them. I can't afford to raise them. It's all kind of bullshit excuses. Well, do you want to know one really definitive reason that it's bullshit? Hmm. His home was a Victorian mansion, and the windows in the ballroom were actually Tiffany glass that were signed by Tiffany. And if he had sold those... He could have paid off all of his debt. Hmm. Bullshit excuses. So, a little bit of tie-in. I mean, he kills his family. He says it's for a good reason. Right. Not really buying it. Right, and it does have to do with movement from social strata, but his is fear of losing position, where La Llorena may have been trying to elevate her position. Right, and you can think of, like, the Susan Smith case. Right, she's trying to elevate her position. You know, like if you look at like the altruistic motives and stuff. One big tell for me that it was not altruism is that he did not even feign a suicide attempt. He was off and running. And it's very rare that women will do that. Susan Smith tried to for a minute by saying that the black man stole her car. But he doesn't blame anyone else either. Like He takes responsibility but then says he's not going to go to jail for it i don't know what exactly he i how do you sort that out yeah i mean i think taking it out of that maternal sphere just makes such a difference i agree okay with the exception of the unwanted child motivation for maternal filicide most of them have a component of mercy in a weird way i agree you know there's we talked about some of this modern chicana writing about Lyrena and the feminine aspects of the tale and some authors really want us to kind of reconceptualize this idea okay and so one very interesting writer naomi quinones wants us to look as the mur- look at the murder as like a sacrifice is this like an interpretation of the difficulty women face in order to take care of their children and survive just in this world And she cites, of course, the difficult socioeconomic environment in places like Mexico and also in the people that are crossing the border in that Mexican-U.S. border areas and towns and the people that are coming across. She's saying that, in a way, you can look at it as her selflessly 
taking the lives of her children to save them from the violence of the world that could destroy them. That's a much more compassionate, empathetic look at what's been done to the children. And I think in order to really appreciate the aspects of motherhood that are necessary for the story, you have to look at what's happening through a mother's eyes. Right. You know, some people say, oh, well, this is like you're trying to dilute the horror aspect of this story. But it's really not. No, it's scary. You're moving the horror. You're moving the horror to a much more real place. This is not some spirit that is coming to get you. This is life. This is the violence that's there. This is the economic hardships that are there that a mother could be trying to protect her children from by saying, this world is terrible. Do you you want to live in it? Do we want you to live in this place? It shifts the blame from the individual figure of the lone, psychotic, corrupt woman and holds a mirror up to society and ask what it does to women. Very true. It makes her like a protector against these forces, these social, political forces that are in play. You know, in a way, you can even look at her as comparing her to like Abraham or Agamemnon or something like that. These classic figures that are willing to sacrifice their children for the greater good. And it also looks at this idea of kind of female power. An agency. Definitely. And you know, in one of her writings, she says... It haunts us if we fear her and comforts us if we understand her. So we're restoring that kind of nurturing maternal power to the figure. But there's no way that there could possibly be anyone in the world facing those circumstances. No. (laughs) That's just a story. (laughs) 